the world would you start out a chart or in a chart include derogatory statements? I, I'm an emergency doc for a reason. I'm ADD and ADHD. But for the patient's profound stupidity, he would be here today. Hello, boys and girls. January 2012. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the new year and a new year of Risk Management Month. And Greg? Hey, it's Greg Henry here with Rick Bucata. We are again recording the first edition for year 2012. And Rick, let's get out of the doom and gloom of the last two or three years. We need a positive, positive. I'm positive it's going to be doomy and gloomy. <laughs> That's that's not what the readers uh, really want to hear. And, you know, this is January. Do you know, Rick, why we call the month January? I know about Janus a little bit. You, uh, you know more. Well, Janus was the Roman god who had two faces. He didn't have a back of his head. He only he had two faces, one on one side, one on the other. And so that way, one face looked into the new year and the other face looked back at the old. What a renaissance man you are. Well, what can I say? As my wife says, a veritable fountainhead of useless information that nobody cares about. So anyway, so that's a shout out to my wife too while we're doing this. You know, about uh, maybe three months ago, we did a listing of here's the things that you should put on the chart. And by the way, that was a very popular addition. I've had residency directors call up and say it's mandatory for, for his residents to listen to that particular uh, issue. It was so good. Now, if he made them take Risk Management Monthly, uh, you know, and we could feed our families and stuff, it'd be better. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so this month, we thought we would start out with some things that you ought not put on the chart. Now, I think over the years, we probably have mentioned these, but we'd like to just put them all together on one list. So. Yeah, well, the first thing is, why in the world would you start out a chart or in a chart include derogatory statements or anything discriminatory? You know what? You need to avoid these kind of comments. And as we're going through this, I'm going to throw in some some things which were printed in a in the uh, Journal of Urgent Care Medicine. The article was written by a friend of ours, uh, John Schufelt and Rick he has more letters after his name. He's MD. He's JD. He's MBA. He's FACEP. He's BFD. This guy is BFD. everything. BFD. And, uh, you know, best friends, you know, that sort of thing. All I can tell you is this guy is an accomplished guy. And when he, when he writes, I tend to listen. I mean, I think that this guy has some good things to say. Having said that, here are just a few phrases and I've spoken to John. He's uh, this is a shout out. Hi, John. He said we can use these. Listen to this one, which he had written on a chart. Uh, this is on a patient who didn't come back for uh, a wound follow up or something. But for the patient's profound stupidity, he would be here today. Oh my God! This ignores the fact that there may be some perfectly logical reason this guy didn't come. Why would you attack him personally? And even if there wasn't a logical reason, this chart doesn't sound professional. Here's another one. He shows up yet again today. This is obviously the frequent flyer. Foul smelling, demanding narcotics, and being a general pain in the ass. Uh, 
Is that the way we start the doctor-patient relationship? That doctor sounds a little burned out to me. Oh, my God. Here's one where the uh, he's he's got both doctor and he's a fair guy. He's included some nursing comments. Uh, and this one is uh, I re- written by a nurse after discharge on the chart. I repeatedly told Dr. X not to send the child home. Uh, this is a child, by the way, who ultimately died from an intercerebral bleed. Can you imagine how useful that is to have that nursing note there? If you're really upset, nurse so-and-so, nurse Ratchet, just go to the doc and tell him straight up, look, this is a problem. But to write that note in the chart, you might as well have put a gun in your mouth and blown your head off. No, very, very bad. Obviously, you know, you th- some things that you think are obvious apparently are not. They're not obvious to some of these folks, and I, I don't understand it. Uh, uh, here's another one on a nurse, uh, written by a nurse on a patient she was about to send home. Patient remains confused. Discharged to home. Tell me the value of that note. I mean, first of all... It's very valuable for the plaintiff. It's very valuable for the plaintiff, but let's say there's no malpractice. I'd like to pretend that the lawyers didn't exist. What about for patient care? If you honestly believe a patient is not being properly cared for, have the courage to go to the doc and say, we need to kind of look at this thing again. This isn't right. Oh, here's a great doctor comment that was written right on the chart. But for the nurse's incompetence, the patient would have lived. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. God save me from this. Well, you know, it would uh, be uh, probably wrong to think that this happened in some really wacky uh, urgent care center. And I think that it suggests that periodically all charts in the department should be in some way selected for random review to see whether, in fact, anybody is writing this stuff. Because, unfortunately, many physicians don't read nurses' notes, and especially now that we have computer systems. Those notes are being generated totally away from the ER doctor. The last, the next time you're going to see them is in the deposition. You have no idea what they've written. Exactly right. And at least in deposition, if it's something you said to the patient, and, and certainly I want you to say the right things, but at least then it's how I remember it. When it's written on the chart, it's written on the chart. It's a yes or no question, Rick. And if it actually says those things, how is anybody going to take it seriously? I, I always remember the chart that said on it, a 400-pound a, a, uh, fat slob. Now, to say that they're four, five foot five, 400 pounds is a scientific observation, and I think it says it all, doesn't it? I mean, it tells you that there's some difficulty with the physical exam, doing the pelvic may be difficult, yada, yada. But to actually call them a fat slob on the chart? So it's hard to believe that people are so stupid that they would write these kind of comments. But these are real comments that John put down. <laughs> yes. I, he didn't make them up. Yeah, I, I know that. And, uh, you know, uh, again, John's an interesting guy. He's also a lawyer. He's taught all this stuff. What I can say is... Let's be a little cautious about what we print on that chart. And here's my, here's my measure of this. Kindest woman I ever met in the world was my mom. And I asked myself this question. If my mom read this, would she be proud of me as a doctor? 
It's the biggest day in her whole life for that woman when I became a doctor. She'd be so disappointed that I did that, I wouldn't show it to her. Well, if I wouldn't show it to my mom, I'm not going to write it on the chart. Uh, and I, I think at a certain point in time, why, ra- why wave this huge red flag at this bull and, and, and to, be, to be run over? And just don't be wrong. Right. You, you can write all that terrible stuff, to, all of it, but just don't be wrong. Right. If you write <laughs> don't make that, a mistake. If you write that stuff and you're right, then you're just sort of a turd. If, you're, if you actually are wrong, we have a new name for you. You're the defendant physician. And the last thing you want is 12 people picked from the voters' rolls who get to decide from that comment whether you cared. That's exactly right. You are an uncaring jerk. Right. And it's reflected in these comments that any uh, person on a lay jury would understand. Yeah, but understand a lot of this came from our experiences as medical students where in academic centers they occasionally saw these chart wars go on. I had a great one where, where it said, Internal Medicine had written, we've called for an opti consult. Three hours later it says, still the ophthalmologists uh, have not shown up. Four hours later, there's another comment. There's nothing that says, you know, I called them again. I talked to the attending, told them to get on the the butt of the resident, anything like that. What it was is a series of chart wars making derogatory comments about another specialty. By the way, this is a patient who had a penetrating uh, a problem with the eye scratched and pseudomonas and, uh, and, and had a penetrating infection of the eye. You can imagine how well that went over mm-hmm. in court. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, of course, all they had to do was read from the chart. I hate it when we supply the, the, the rope and the noose for our own hanging. It's not useful. So you need to write professional comments, dispassionate, objective, without your uh, prejudicial two cents. Bottom line is arguments with other doctors, conflicts with other physicians, nursing uh, problems, uh, problem with an administrator, take it up in the forum that it needs to be taken up in. Do not use the chart as, as the surrogate whipping boy of your problems. And that's what this is. You're whipping the chart. Uh, and and I don't, I've never seen that actually help patient care. Don't do it. So number one was the derogatory or discriminatory remarks against, about patients. Arguments or conflicts with other physicians, which come up all of the time. These are not to go into the chart. Uh, they can handle them after the fact in some kind of committee, but do not provide the evidence of the dysfunction of the department by right. putting that down there. The other thing is no, never get into subjective statements regarding prior treatment or poor outcomes. We've talked about this before that whenever they say, doctor, shouldn't they have... Shouldn't they have started them on antibiotics? Shouldn't they have done a skull x-ray? Yada, yada, yada. The, the way you answer that is by, is by saying, you know, I wasn't there yesterday. All disease changes with time. I bet they had the same interest that I have, which is making you better. Let's move on from here. But for, to make uh, uh, derogatory comments about another physician or healthcare worker's care, to me, is a fireable offense. Because what you've done is you've just stirred the pot with no data 
with no real information. And now to make yourself engrandized, what you've done is you've you've uh, pissed on the on the previous physician, and I think that's inappropriate. Well, it's one thing to write this stuff down in the chart, but more often than not, this is verbal. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, oh no, it's it's one of those cutesy little things, uh, and 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 we say it uh, just again as an offhanded comment. You mean he didn't order the next ex- ex- neck X-ray? Exactly. Well, the other thing is, you you don't take much account of it. Because it's standard conversation. A patient is always looking for something. They want somebody, this is in America, they want somebody to blame for everything. So don't be casual about a comment like that. Uh, because they were seen yesterday, and I, I watched this as, a, um, <clears throat> as an attending, a surgical resident say to a patient who had been at the, another hospital, a major university hospital, which will remain nameless the day before, said, oh, so they weren't even good enough to figure out appendicitis at that hospital? And this is on a child who'd been seen 24 hours earlier. I mean, tell me the emergency doc who's not seen a kid with a belly that looked relatively benign, and the next day they're in, and now it's they've got peritonitis. Yeah, you have to look at the... Uh motivation for these comments they are to engrandize yourself in the process of denigrating somebody else uh, when you don't know all the facts and this is so obvious but the fact of the matter is people still do it this is emergency medicine 101 you don't put this stuff on the chart no absolutely not and 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 whenever you've got (laughs) neil little uh, one of my our good friends and my partner says whenever something would feel really good to say It'd like be a brilliant, witty comment. Don't say it. And he's probably right on that situation. Because the great zinger, which you and I might have with each other, having a beer someplace, talking about each other, has nothing to do with the patient sitting in that bed. Again, if my mama wouldn't be proud of you, why are you saying that? And, and I think that's a good measure of what's going on. Next would be uh, this idea where you have an adverse event, and then you go to the chart, and then you're not. Uh, th- then you start writing all of this self-serving stuff after that event occurred. Yep. Yep. Useless. Useless. I think if there are important factual things that are in there, that's fine. Don't use it as, as an excuse or an apology or anything else at that moment in time. Uh, you know, if there there may be something important that needs to be recorded, but it needs to be done in a dispassionate manner, uh, as if you're just putting in information, not explaining what happened or didn't happen. This is all going to be a pre- a viewed as self-serving. Now, we're not even talking about things like you know changing the chart or crossing things out. We're just no, no. talking about these notes. The patient arrested unexpectedly, and you start writing thereafter. Um, you got to be pretty careful not to be uh, writing notes that are just going to defend yourself. Right. Because they're going to be obviously self-serving. Well, it, it, absolutely right. And and uh, by the way, this question comes up every time. If an incident report has been written up, now let's do some def- definitions here. An incident report is part of the quality assurance system of the hospital. Uh, let's say there was a patient over an x-ray and uh, Jimmy Jones, the 
second shift x-ray tech calls you over because he's dropped a patient off the table. So you pick up the patient, you, you examine him, the chart ought to reflect, uh, patient fell off table, examined him, this is what was found. The incident report on this may be, this is the fourth time that this particular tech has called us over for this problem. He needs to be counseled on getting help to move certain size patients, whatever it is. But you don't have to show in the chart that an incident report was filed. How does that help the patient? The patient's record is for the benefit of the patient. It doesn't do anyone any good, except plaintiff's attorney, to know that an incident report is filed. And by the way, in most states, if you reference an incident report in the chart, it becomes a part of the chart. And so the veil of protection of, of, of the quality assurance program has been penetrated. And at least in Michigan cases, they've been allowed to have the incident report related to that case. So that is also Emergency Medicine 101. Yes. Hello. Come Ad- on. What are you doing? Uh, addendums. Addendums. Done the next day, uh, patients came back, and uh, the addendums basically have to be done properly. They have to be timed and dated when they were written, Right. even though it would be much better uh, if they were not timed and dated when written, but looked like it was part of the original chart. Yep. But Never get, do that. But you'll get nailed on that. <laughs> Every time. And, and uh, it's unlikely you're going to write that addendum with the same pen you used before. If you have an electronic system, it records when you did the addendum, uh, you know, the date, the time, the second that it was actually done. And remember, addendums always also will be self-serving, so they have to be written as dispassionately and objectively as possible. Yeah, I, I'm not against self-serving. I mean, if I'm going to serve anyone, I'm going to serve myself. I don't think there's anything the matter with that, but what you have to view is that it's now going to be at least somewhat tainted by the jury as that whatever's going on at this moment in time uh, really is something unusual or something different than the usual course and practice. I always remember the attorney who said, well, doctor, he's got a physician on the stand said, doctor, an addendum was written. He said, you don't do that on every patient, do you? In fact, I would be willing to bet, doctor, you only do it on those patients on who you think you're going to get sued. Isn't that right, doctor? See, that's a very that's a very different way of looking at the addendum. So you're right; it needs to be dispassionate, facts only, no begging, pleading, uh, anything like that needs to go in the addendum at that moment in time. Altering the records—that's a no-brainer. Uh, the idea where you cross something out so it couldn't be read or... Yes. Um, we refer to that or, as doctoring the chart. Or losing a page of the record. This disappeared someplace. Most every state has a standard practice which says the hospital is required to maintain the records. Should a piece of the record be missing, it is to be interpreted by the jury as if it would been supportive of the plaintiff's case. Oh, very cool. That's that that is the Michigan law and, and, and those are almost word for word what, what the law says. But what it what it means is where are those other four pages of EKG strips? Okay, where are they? 
well, we don't have them. Then, then the jury is to be instructed by the judge under Michigan law, stare decise, that which has been will be. The rule is it will be interpreted as favorable to the complaining party. Very interesting. Yep. Uh, the last one we have here is uh, do not countersign notes without reading them. Uh, this is becoming more and more and more of an issue, I believe, Rick, now that we have... This this rule is, is violated about as often as the Los Angeles jaywalking ordinance. I mean, how many people actually get run over in L.A.? Not a lot. But when you do get run over, don't bitch about it because the... It, Things are put in front of doctors every day and they just sign. The biggest issue now is in the residence notes. How do we know you actually saw the case? You know, what what's dictated? What's put in there? How do we know you actually went in, shook hands with a patient, and looked at the relevant issues? That's very difficult. And so just casually signing is hard. The biggest area, of course, is with uh, PAs. Uh, and NPs. If you're actually providing supervision on the case, what does the signature mean? That's a good question. Well, you see, because does the signature mean you have a right to bill the 100% rate? Because there are two rates. There's distance supervision rate in under, under uh, various insurance programs, including Medicare, sort of supervisional rate, and then there's the that's at the 85% level. Then there's the 100% level. That means you actually were involved in the care. And to a very great degree, most groups, I, I bet most people who are listening to this, their group bills at the 100% rate. Well, by God, <laughs> you can't then blame the PA when something goes wrong. And I've seen that. I've seen that in court. I've seen doctors chicken out on this thing and say, well, I probably didn't really see the patient. Well, they used your provider number if you're a PA, if you're a MD supervising a PA. They used your provider number. They billed the federal government. I think that's called fraud if you didn't actually give the care. And that's not, a, that's not something you want to fight about. This is a growing area of importance, and I think uh, we've brought this up before. Uh, it's kind of not necessarily a very popular point of view. I understand it's not popular. Rick, they don't, they don't pay us to make them well, feel good. The point I was going to make is, um, you know, 20 years ago, we beat our chest and said the only person who could work in an emergency department was a board-certified residency-trained doctor, and, uh, and that was... Um, a very aggressive stance that we took. Yeah, yeah, that was the that was the ASEP stance, and that was the defense for for moving to the wholesale uh, proliferation of residencies. You realize next year, no, two years from now, we will turn out two thousand residency graduates a year. That means if they average a thirty-year career, you're looking at sixty thousand practicing emergency physicians. Uh, that's a fair number. That's more than there are spots today. But the problem that I see is that um, we have embraced the physician assistants and nurse practitioners uh, who have no special training in emergency medicine whatsoever. 
Um, they may have taken some courses, but most of them don't have to. Once you graduate, you can work in an emergency department. And a substantial subset of patients are no longer being seen by emergency physicians who we claimed and needed to be seen by emergency physicians. In some places, it's like 40% of the patients are seen by PAs. Right. Rick, we're, we're, we're in the state of California right now recording. Uh, the California Emergency Physicians, an excellent group, We've both done uh, work for them, fine people. will tell you right to your face, last year, 40% of their patient population was seen by PAs. Well, my question to you is, would 60% be the right number? Would, would 70% be the right 80 sounds good. Well, 80 sounds good. You see, the bottom line is we don't know who should be seen. The, I always love the doc who says, well, I, I need to be there for the really sick patients. I think that's wrong. The sicker you are, the less you need a great doctor. Uh, if you've got, if you come in, forty-five diaphoretic, big ST segments, you don't even need me. PAs look at it and say that looks like a a STEMI. Put four aspirin in their mouth. Uh, call the cath lab. Call the cardiologist. I think a much tougher case is the two and a half year old. With, with belly pain. I think a tougher case is the 67-year-old who was uh, standing at the bus stop and then had a syncopal attack. I think those are tougher cases, Rick. Well, the question is all about supervision. Absolutely. And uh, the documentation of that supervision. And I think some groups probably do it well, but I know some groups don't do it well. Yeah, well... And, it, we, and, and it's a, such an attractive thing to say, I can make money... By having these PAs work who make a third of the salary of the doctors, and it's like the the moth to the flame here is so intense. Yeah, actually, a third is not quite right, Rick. I, I think a lot of them are much closer to 55, 60 percent. Uh, and the I'll, I'll let me let me give you something that'll that'll uh, raise the hair on the back of your neck. The the uh, physician assistants to the thoracic surgeons were where I am make more than the first than than the pediatricians uh in practice uh it, it's it kind of depends on who you are and what you do no i got it yep and so i'm just asking people to be really 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 careful about the use of uh pas and nps uh particularly when their their training is on the job training, which we said was not good. Well, the other thing is, what is the expectation of the individual coming to the emergency department? Who do they think is going to see them? And I, and I think these are the questions we ought to start asking. What is the list of disease entities which require physician involvement? For example, what about second and third visits? Should the physician be involved in those? Absolutely. Well, but the point in then let's have a list of those things which we as a profession. Here's what I don't want to have happen. I don't want to see the legal profession define for our own specialty, for us. I don't want to see them define what good medicine is. And that's what's going to happen unless we come up with something serious that, that actually asks the correct set of questions. And I, I don't think that that's happening. Now, I'm well aware what's happening in the offices of, of dermatologists and that sort of thing. A lot of times, 
dermatologists will not see the follow-up visits of of kids with zits and that kind of stuff. It's all done by the by the PAs until the case is going wrong, and then the physician becomes involved. You and I have a different kind of practice. We see people who are, by definition, sicker. What are we going to do with those cases? And I, I, I would love to see a much more serious debate in the profession about what we're going to do. Understood and agreed. Uh, this is probably not popular. I, <laughs> then again, this I, is about risk management. Well, Rick. And you're we, seeing more and more of these cases. Yeah, Rick, we've been unpopular before in any event. Uh, um, we'd like to have the input of, of uh, listeners. We have a very sophisticated group of listeners to this, uh, to this program. And your input about what you're doing, we're going to be happy to read those letters because I think that we, we have a problem that needs to be addressed. Actually, you want to do a letter right now? You want to do this nice one letter? Letters. I think that this is a tough one, actually. Well, yes and no. So this is from uh, James Heisen, who's written in the past, Dr. Yes. Bugs. Uh, he says, we have a discussion among our group and with one of the surgeons regarding transfers of our patients that are done by private car. There are obviously some potential problems that can stem from this. The patient's not going to the appropriate hospital or going home or eating on the way and they, and, and they needed surgery. Is there any potential problems with this or any uh, EMTALA violation? Is this, you know, does EMTALA mandate that you have to go by ambulance? Our most common type of patient, he says, is uh, those we send by car who have cuts on the face, who need some plastic surgery, or possibly an isolated orthopedic injury that needs to be seen by a hand surgeon. Some of these patients refuse to go by ambulance, and frankly, I think they ought to refuse to go by ambulance because they're going to get that bill for $9,000 for it to be in a, in a uh, paper sheet with some oxygen, which you don't need. Yeah, which they don't need. <laughs> I, uh, hello, if there's anybody listening out there, the vast majority of people need A, number one, no IV, number two, no oxygen. All of that's been proven. It's going to take us another 50 years to take those masks, those prongs off. Uh, Rick. Well, you know, they built for that stuff. But <laughs> the, I think the fundamental question here is, do all EMTALA transfers have to be by ambulance? No. And, and I think that uh, let's, let's be reasonable here. If we look at the at, – uh, I'll take my home spot to Washtenaw County, Michigan. Uh, there are, at 11 o'clock at night – uh, probably six ambulances available to cover that area. If you're tying one of them up to do an essentially elective transfer, then something else happens. What you know? How do you justify the use of that limited resource? The other thing is, let's say the patient has to pay uh, the first uh, $200 or $300 of a transfer, and they could have driven little Johnny from from Chelsea, Michigan to the University of Michigan Hospital in 20 minutes. Come on. How do we defend that? And now this is physician judgment. You look and say this family isn't capable. They don't know this, they don't know that. But the bottom line is there are plenty of people who are capable, who are reasonable, and if you've done an assessment which no minute to minute emergency exists, you're free from the EMTALA requirement. Yeah, there have been some uh, problems when people have 
gone to the wrong hospital or done some of the things that James has talked about. It turned out to be a little embarrassing, but the fact is uh, it is unreasonable for you to mandate an ambulance when you're going to the hospital next over. There's no medical urgency here. This fracture is stable. It's been splinted. This uh, laceration is going to get sewn up by a, a plastic surgeon, those kinds of things. So it's not, it's basically to a higher level of care, but the fact of the matter is that it's not a matter of urgency. And I think it's unfair to for you to hide behind the Amtala to say, fine, you're going to get a $500 ambulance bill because I, I don't want to uh, uh, suggest that you drive uh, five miles to the next well, hospital. Well, as a matter of fact, we did have a, we did have a complaint letter, which was amazing, from a uh, family that... Uh, the child was sent over by ambulance to the university. They had a facial laceration, which did go through uh, the, uh, the the lid margin oh on an eye. Oh my God! And uh, okay, so is there a, is there a plastics question there? There may be, and the family, sophisticated, asked that question. Uh, could we have sewn it up? Sure. Might there have been a slightly different scar? Who knows? But the emergency doc sent the kid by ambulance, and the family did have to pay the first $500. Now, I think $500 is a lot for a transfer. Do you know what the bill was for that transfer, Rick? 3800 bucks. Well, you know, you think paper sheets are, grow on trees? Yeah, exactly. You think yeah. oxygen grows on trees? One, one of the worst mistakes we ever make is not forcing the residents to see the entire hospital bill for emergency department visits. Oh, I wouldn't say the residents. I think every emergency physician periodically needs to see some of the absolutely absurd bills that they generate by their practice in the emergency department. They shouldn't be shouldn't look at them. They should be beaten with them. <laughs> they should be rolled up like newspaper and beaten with those bills it's because they're huge. To get out of the emergency department for less than a thousand dollars. Impossible. Impossible. Yeah, and so whenever anybody says, well, we think the care of that sore throat is so much lower at an urgent care, ask yourself some questions. Many years ago, Bob Williams had a, the, first, uh, the lead paper in the New England Journal, which talked the, talks about the difference of the marginal cost of one more sore throat. And the truth is, we can see them for almost no money. So how come the bill is that much? And And I understand why. But but just understand the public, which is now watching its health benefits get uh, decreased, they're watching the car industry being destroyed by the health care premiums they're paying. You know, there's a lot of folks unhappy with us out there. Well, you know, I, I remember this great study, and I've re repeated it in the past, but I think it's not... Uh it's worth repeating again. There was this study where they looked at a large insurance company database of what was paid for uh, a variety of visits in various settings. They looked at UTIs, uh, otitis media, <clears throat> and uh, pharyngitis. And um, they looked at what was paid at one of these um, nurse places at Walmart where you're having a nurse practitioner. You nurse know, in the box. Yes. The, the payment there was $110. They looked at a doctor's office and an urgent care center, and the payment for those same minor complaints, was a, uh, the payment was $160. They looked at the emergency department. The payment there was $570. Uh, 
Uh, they then looked at 12 quality measures, and the ER was the worst. $570 for a UTI versus $110 in the Walmart clinic. Mm-hmm. This is not sustainable. It is not sustainable. People are going to get real smart real soon and say, hey, I, I don't want to go there because the co-pays are getting higher and higher and higher. And you know you have to wait three or four days in an ER to be seen in the first place, and you hope you don't get a burned-out doctor. All I can tell you is uh, it, it's not a simple issue. And if I know they've got a, a – this group has, has some interaction with a surgeon who thought maybe that wasn't right. But the bottom line is let's take a bigger view of this. Are we actually putting a patient at risk? Are we actually utilizing as the stewards of resources? Are we using resources correctly? You know, I'm not advocating somebody who's short of breath and may need intubating kind of thing. I got you, got you. Yeah, okay, let's just do this right. All right, we have a couple of papers that uh, we might want to take a look at. Um, Not all of them necessarily. Here's one I thought was a little bit interesting. It's relatively recent. It's called Clinical Decision Support and Malpractice Risk. And everybody's using these computers now for for computer uh, order entry. And that's supposedly so that you make less mistakes in the process of uh, ordering things and that you are advised in the process of ordering things of potential drug-drug interactions. And it's going to be safer and it's going to be wonderful and it's going to be a, a great process. However... This is an article in JAMA by Dr. Greenberg and colleagues, July 6, 2011, looking at medical malpractice risk associated with clinical decision support. Now, Greg, do you, have you ever had to use this to kind of stuff where you're entering orders into a computer? Yes. Um, <laughs> Ask you, me if I liked it. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I talk to doctors, and, and a lot of them do like it, uh, largely because they like order sets. And so you click out that one button and you just ordered like $1,500 worth of chest pain related kinds of things or right. $2,000 for a belly pain workup. And here's my plea. I would love to have a nice big group look at what the cost of lab and x-ray was before the use of CPOE and after. Because my contention is we're probably ordering more crap than we ever did by because it's too easy now. But in any case, Dr. Greenberg and his colleagues made the uh, point here that those physicians who are using CPOE are going to run across all of these um, flags because they're really talking about clinical decision support, which is built into these machines so that when you're ordering drug X, it tells you to watch out about drug Y. Yeah, and and the problem with everything, and Rick, I think that the fact that it's electronic makes no difference. Uh, you and I have seen the same thing with uh, templated charts, with all these other sorts of things. Whenever you have a list of a mandatory number of things which people think need to be checked, yes or no, it forces you either, number one, to lie, or number two, to super, superficially whip through things, uh, which, which may give you the problem of overlooking things as well. Right. And, so he- yeah, he talks about this idea of alert fatigue. The manufacturers of these computer systems do not want to miss anything. So basically, they have created these systems of alerts, which alerts you on so many things that you basically go nuts and you get alert fatigue and you bl- 
blitzed through all of them. He points out that there was a study. In one study, 19 of 20 warnings were overridden. Of course, because they didn't make any clinical sense. Then the question is, is our sensitivity level too high? Have, have we set the parameters well, such? That's, that's what he's suggesting. Yes, that what, what we're doing is we're picking up so much stuff, and what you're just suggesting is when a doctor is just worn out by going through these things, then he doesn't really pay attention to the real, the real stuff. It's like, uh, it's like whenever you have 28 pages of nursing notes that have all been printed out are redundant, how do you pick out the one line that's been added that's of importance. Well, Dr. Greenberg says there is the potential, therefore, to increase malpractices by either ignoring or turning off alerts. The problem, the computers track and record all of your... Turning off. Turning yeah. off and you're ignoring. Well, before we could do all that, how many people listening to this uh, tape have actually gone through the department and shut off alarms on monitors... See, every time Mr. Smith moves, we get a this or that. We had one of those cases where the nurses shut off alarm yeah. on the night shift. Yeah. It cost us lots and lots of money. It cost yeah. the hospital lots well, and lots of money. Rick, the alarm going off was interrupting their sleep. And you have to understand. <laughs> exactly See, the, right. the real problem is this. It's where you set the parameters on the alarm. If you've decided that 100 is where the alarm has to go off as a, as a heart rate, maybe a more intelligent number would have been 110. <laughs> and and then it then the usual statistical variance wouldn't have come into play. But we, we really need to look at this question. I mean, there's none of us who hasn't readjusted or shut off those alarms. And now that it's electronic and tells them that we've shut off the alarm. Yeah, there's an audit trail. Of, there's an audit trail. Of all of the things that you've blown through. Right. So that uh, it can be re readily reconstructed when there's a problem and you, in fact, overlooked it, an important alert. Right. Well, let, let's let's sort of get down to brass tacks here. The most that these things come up with, I think, 80%, 90%, are drug-drug interaction questions. Now, if you read the PDR, would you give anybody anything? The answer is no, you couldn't do it. What we have to do is move beyond that so that there's a reasonably intelligent uh, group of docs, experts, who've come up with a list that says this is actually important. Actually, that's his solution. Of he course. says there's a dichotomy here. The vendors who create these machines want to leave no potential drug-drug interaction. Un, 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 no stone unturned. They want to have everything. He's saying when you have everything, you wind up with this alert, alert fatigue and you blow through the things that are important. Exactly. So what he has suggested is that there be some kind of panel of experts right. who, seg uh, who segregate these alerts and say these are the important ones and these are not the important ones. And every system uses the same system. And every one of us has been involved in one of those things where, yeah, it would have been useful to say, well, they're allergic to amoxicillin, they're allergic to this or that. Maybe penicillin wasn't the drug of choice at that moment. That might be a good alert. But I've also seen these things which are so theoretical, so off in the distance, that to, to, to follow every one of those, every day you and I make risk-benefit judgments. And come on. I mean, there are things we really shouldn't do 
And then there's a whole gray area there of it depends on what the patient need is. I mean, these, these systems treat us sort of like we're stupid. And at a certain point in time, it's, it's overkill. It will not solve the problem we're trying to solve. But there is a fundamental medical legal focus here. The manufacturers feel that they will be viewed as negligent if they don't put everything in. And the downside is we get this alert fatigue and blow through the important ones because we can't see the forest for the trees. His idea actually sounds like it makes a lot of sense where there was be a national panel that creates this list, which is embedded into every CPOE system. He even suggests that uh, a safe harbor legislation be included that says if you use this system that has been developed by this national panel that has segregated the important stuff from the mi- uh, the minor stuff, that you will be uh, protected. And that would basically relieve the manufacturers of this of their of their desire to put everything in. Well, this is like the vaccine legislation, which said, you know, we don't know all the possibilities of vaccines, but if they follow these recommendations, then you can't sue the maker of vaccines. So right now, you who are doing CPOE are at risk because it's likely that your computer program is very, very generous with regards to these alerts, and you're prone to alert fatigue, and you may be, therefore, likely to make a mistake. Yeah. Oh, well. And the audit trail will clearly point out your mistake. Yes, at <laughs> some at some right. point in time. Yes. There you right. go. Okay. What's the next paper we have here, Rick? Well, I, let's see. This is entitled Medical Malpractice Liability in the Age of Electronic Health Records. It was in the New England Journal. It was done last year. The New England Journal? New England Journal. We're not worthy. Yes, sir. we're not worthy. We're not worthy. Uh, they talk about risks in three phases, the uh, implementation phase, the uh, the transition phase, and the uh, mature phase. Yeah, I, I, they made a lot of good points, Rick. Uh, and that is, as we're moving to an electronic record, and by the way, I have yet to go to the emergency department that thinks the electronic medical record made them more efficient, move patients better, uh, or or actually turned out a better health care product, but I refuse to ride that pony any further here. The train is out of the station, oh, Greg. Oh, the train is Paper out of the station. is sta- gone. I understand, but intelligence is gone. You and I came up in the world where the emergency medicine record was one page, and it had a tear-off strip at the bottom, so you could write three, about three... Um, uh, going home instructions, discharge instructions of the patient. Do you honestly think that a 14-page discharge instruction sheet gives any better care? No, as a matter of fact, it gives you know, worse care. You and I both write columns for EP Monthly. Yes. Well, my column this month uh, for EP Monthly looked at um, computerized aftercare instructions and the like, and. Uh, I had a good time with it. Well, I'm sure you quoted the University of Michigan paper, which basically said not only did they get longer, but nobody read them, and they actually yeah, got tossed in the barrel. It's inverse. It's inverse. And then the other thing about aftercare instructions is that we try to make little doctors out of lay people, and if you, the, the poster child for aftercare instructions that are screwed up are head injury instructions, where they say, you know, check the pupils. 
Well, the last I heard, when the pupils were unequal, you were either decorticate or decerebrate, but you were in a, some kind of a coma. Fit for postal <laughs> employment only, and the post office is shrinking. And, you know, I, 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 this is clearly a tangent, but I saw uh, them where it says, if your child vomits more than twice, you know, bring them back. Well, there is absolutely no literature that says once is okay. <laughs> but uh, twice, I'll oh, forget it. You know, you got a big problem. Yeah, there. you're. you're de- There's you're all de- sorts of crap on this stuff. All right, let's get back to this paper on the medical uh, uh, malpractice liability with the uh, electronic uh, health records, because you're going to go through an implementation phase when doctors are using either both systems or just getting used to this. The biggest problem is inadequate training may create a new error pathway. Mm-hmm. That is. If the docs don't know how to drop down to the various screens, uh, you you can head off in strange directions. The other thing is a lot of these programs have a language of their own. It may not follow one to the ne- uh, one sheet to the next as you would predict it would, and you have to learn the intricacies of the machine. Uh, just to tell everybody, I'm still in favor of like systems like Dragon, where a doctor gets to dictate a history and physical. If you ask the attendings at your hospital what they'd rather have come about their patient, they want two good paragraphs which clearly summarize what happened. Going through checkboxes and all that sort of thing, they don't know what to do with it, Rick. And I think the care is actually worse, not better. But again, like you say... The, uh, the train may be out of the station. We don't know what to you. So they're talking about all kinds of opportunities to screw up during the implementation phase. Obviously, training or inadequate training, the transition between where you have a half the record is on paper, half the record is, is uh, on, uh, on the computer. There's uh, opportunities for errors by users who, uh, incorrectly or uh, creating the record in terms of missing data. It, it, in fact, I reviewed a malpractice case where they were using a, an electronic record in an urgent care setting, and that record just nailed them. It just nailed them. It was so poorly done in terms of its construction and how the system worked. It was a disaster, and I think the doctor may have recently gotten onto it, inadequately trained, but it created a record that was absolutely horrible in terms of defending the care of this doctor. Right. There are specific yeses and nos we need to go through, but they vary case to case, and and sometimes the record does not reflect what should have been done at uh, that moment in time. Um, there are always bugs and failures, and and let me tell you what I think, what I have seen in my own practice of medical legal activity. When the system goes down, what do you do? How clear is it what they're going to revert back to, and how they're going to make recordings? Because let's say you're at a 60,000, 70,000 visit emergency department, and now the computer program system has gone down. It's 2 in the morning. Where are you going to get tech support? And how do you then change over uh, to the paper system? It's got to be very clear what you do when you do it and, and how you move from one to the other in these situations. So there's lots of opportunities during the transition phase to have uh, screw-ups, they're not going to absolve you by saying, well, 
you hurt this patient, but it was because the record, I understand, you were just getting into the computer system and it had some bugs, and I understand it. No, they're not going to understand that. No, no. You're not going to be given any lax. Well, the perfect plaintiff's question is, doctor, would you please show me the discount you gave that patient on their bill because your system was inadequate or unworkable at that time? I'm sure you took 50% off the bill, didn't you, doctor? No, not exactly. Not exactly, right. We talk about um, other kinds of risk when these machines become more embedded and more um, uh, widespread. They talk about... Better access to clinical information could create legal opportunities, uh, legal duties to act on that information. It's there. Doctor, did you look up the past record of this person? Well, no, I didn't. So that is an opportunity to uh, make your life a little unpleasant. Well, that question comes up even in paper records, Rick, when they say, did you get the old chart sent up? Now, you and I both know there there are disease entities or things where that's not required. I can't go through the old chart of every patient unless it's relevant to the complaint they've got right now. Uh, but you'll only know that if you've gone through not, it. Not necessarily true. They might have diabetes, but they cut their finger. On every cut finger and every diabetic, am I going to look through the last five years' blood sugars? I think that's crazy. Widespread use of clinical decision support may solidify standards of care that might be otherwise subject to debate. Yeah, that's called TPA, Rick. Uh, and and <laughs> and what it does is it now uh, artificially creates what is correct medicine or the standard of care because it's embedded in the decision tree doesn't mean that it's right. There's all kinds of drugs that we give out and things that we do which someone might put down. Let me give you a good example. What about uh, spinal cord uh, trauma and steroids? Let's say that's in the decision tree. In the past, it was a good idea. Well, no. In the past, it was something we did. It was never proven to be a good idea, Rick. Now it's not a good idea. Now it's not a good idea. And the only reason I uh, mention that is I've got to go to court uh, next week on Wednesday on exactly that case. And they found some nitwit who says, oh, we give steroids to all these people. And I'm having to bring in 82 articles that say you're a fool. Uh, But the truth is you can get somebody to say anything for money in America. They also point out that the rise of electronic records may heighten clinicians' duties to search for patient information generated by other clinicians, which is similar to what we just talked about. Yeah. Failure to adopt electronic technology may itself constitute a deviation from the standard of care. Oh, God. Well, God God help us if that's the case, because there may be perfectly reasonable situations in which the manual record is just fine. I mean, does everything have to be electronic? And if if we've now created this new standard, we're going to see one patient an hour, Rick, if we have to sit and go through all that information. The other thing is, I don't want to be an emergency doc then. I'm an emergency doc for a reason. I'm ADD and ADHD. If I have to go through all that shit, I might as well be an internist. (laughs) (laughs) So there's more to this paper. I don't think we need to go through it, but it is um, New England Journal, November 18, 2010. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there. Well, I, I think there's a couple other things we ought to hit, Rick, and that is one of these, this email stuff. 
uh, if you're an emergency department that's having people email you questions or, or about their previous care, you've now taken on a very interesting problem. Are you really going to answer in a reasonable time people's emails about their care in the emergency department? I think that's frightening. I, th- I think that's a dangerous concept. Well, they've talked about the speed by, by which you return those emails. Uh, there's all kinds of traps, but those are relating primarily to primary care physicians. Well, and, but let me tell you where the new horizon is going to be. Uh, there's a certain amount of demand management in commonly re- uh, uh, seen diseases, and I'll use as, as, the, uh, as the one to talk about congestive heart failure. It is the number one DRG that's admitted in the United States. It's the number one problem that the feds are going after. And what they found is if they have some sort of central system that sends patients out emails every day to go stand on your scale, report your weight gain, they can actually reduce the number of those people who get out of control. I think there are some good things on the horizon. A very interesting study done by a friend of ours, Greg Larkin, looked at managing, um, and and another huge number in in the modern world is depression. They sent them emails every day. How are you doing on a scale? Cheer up. (laughs) Yeah, well, what it it said was, how are you on a scale to 1 to 10? And if they were like below a 4 or a 5, then they had them, come in or follow up somebody above that what was interesting is when they interviewed the patients they loved the care they anthropomorphized the computer that it's totally computer driven the computer they think people care about them and are talking to them about how they're feeling they did very well and it had nothing to do with anybody who liked them well sanjay uh Aurora and uh, Mike Manchin at uh, USC have developed a program where they are, uh, do similar things with uh, diabetics, yeah. where they s- send phone messages to them and uh, support them and look at you know whether they're able to avert visits and things like that. Yeah. So that, it's, that's the wave of the future. Yeah, by the way, how, how's that going? Uh, do you know where the results are at this no, point? No, d- honestly, I don't. Let's just do one, one quickie. Okay. Uh, it's a paper that came out of uh, JAMA July 20th of the, this year. It's entitled Assessing Liability for Healthcare Entities that Insufficiently Prepare for Catastrophic Emergencies. This is a, um, done by a couple of lawyers. Um, of course it's done by lawyers. It's a commentary detailing a settlement that Tenet made to the families of 45 people who died as a result of Katrina and this hospital's inability to kind of deal with that disaster. And uh, fortunately, this case never went to trial uh, because I think it probably would have lost personally, but but Tenet did settle with uh, the families of these 45 people. The allegations being that this hospital was inadequately prepared uh, to handle emergencies. And as a result, these people died. Stop. Stop. God, stop. Well, I, 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 I'm just the just conduit here. I, I know you're the conduit. We're conduit. But as you remember, Katrina was, was since 1886, the worst thing that happened in New Orleans. It's the one in a hundred and... What is that? A 125-year storm. How are you going to prepare for the one in a 125-year storm? I think that 
realistically, for example, one of the one of the factors they found against the hospital was that their electrical power went out. This hospital had a generator. What happened to the generator, Rick? It got flooded. It got flooded. <laughs> Come on, give me a break here. We, you know, let's just face it. Our hospital system in the United States has no surge capacity. We have no surge capacity. Do you think USC uh, can see um, 50% more patients tomorrow? When we have our earthquake? Yeah, when you have the earthquake. I doubt it. No, of course not. The point is there are certain things I don't think we can prepare for. Let me just say that last month in India, in Mumbai, there was a hospital fire. And 76 people died. And, of course, they got all this camera coverage where you see doctors and nurses and people in scrubs jumping out the windows. Well, you don't see them carrying the patients with them. So six of the hospital administrators were arrested and charged with third-degree, you know, manslaughter, essentially, involuntary manslaughter, because they hadn't properly trained the staff as to how to carry out patients when they were when the hospital was on fire. You know what? I I have no love for hospital administrators, but the bottom line is I don't know how you prepare for some of these things, Rick. I really don't. And yeah, I think you have to document drills. Um, we did a bunch of drills a few years back. Remember when swine flu was big, and we thought that we were going to be inundated. Well, we'd prepared to go to elementary schools and, and, you know, set them up as clinics, all that kind of stuff. How much can we do uh, to, to, to affect the outcome? This reminds me when I was in, in elementary school, we had to go through nuclear attack drills. Remember when we all got under the desk? The truth of the matter is, if they'd hit us with a nuclear bomb... Getting under the desk would have only provided your mausoleum. (laughs) (laughs) When you see the, if you can see the cloud, just bend over and kiss your butt goodbye because you're going to die. Well, the reason this was brought up is uh, this is something that is unprecedented. That it did result in a settlement, largely probably because Tenet Feller was kind of like the most expedient thing to do. Right. And didn't want to go through the publicity, et cetera. Because not everybody, not all the hospitals had 45 people die. This was, frankly, an exception. But everything that could go wrong did go wrong here. And they basically said you didn't have enough staff, you didn't have enough supplies, you didn't have enough this, you didn't have enough that. (laughs) Wait a second. If you list that again, you know what we call that at our place? Tuesday. That's Tuesday. And then right. they cite all of the federal regulations that right, mandate right, this. The right, Joint right. Commission and the and the feds all basically say you're supposed to have this stuff. So they thought that this was over and above, and they basically some dollars changed hand here. One of the concerns was, would this be a precedent? Uh, and I think that always is a concern. And the other thing is, is and they didn't bring this up, but I, I, I'm bringing it up. Emergency physicians are usually fairly intimately involved with the disaster plan of a hospital. And um, so I think that this is kind of a heads up that uh, those of you who are directors, you might need to kind of consider this because if your hospital has nothing in the works, I think there's the potential that it may increase your liability. If you have a reasonable plan, I think that I think you're, you're going to be basically okay. I, and the worst of this is what about the emergency group? Do they have any uh, obligation to have an emergency plan for uh, the uh, a disaster in their hospital in terms of bringing back their doctors, some way of 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 
of um, addressing a disaster in a hospital? Rick, a disaster is defined as when the when the system's capabilities are overwhelmed so the deuce does not function smoothly. Again, that's Tuesday in most people's places. Uh, we have many disasters every day in a lot of major hospitals. And for the people listening to this, there are all kinds of them who think they're overwhelmed, understaffed, not prepared, yada, yada, yada. How do we define what the big disaster is? And um, I, I, I think sometimes the fact that they settled only indicates to me that it was probably cheap and, it was, and probably less than the cost of litigating this thing. Because I can't picture they would go to trial in the state of Louisiana and be found against on a Katrina death. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, this is a, there were alligators floating in the streets. Hey, I'm just a conduit, man. I know. This is a commentary I know. here. Uh, well, I, you know, before I need a nitro here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get your blood pressure yeah, up. Man. Yeah, yeah. You know, all of a sudden now, I'm, you know, I'm in bad need of a Valium at this point in time. I mean, they still make that stuff, don't they, Rick? Absolutely. Yeah, good, 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 you know, good. Um, a couple of months ago, uh, I uh, brought up the uh, an article that related to uh, the malpractice reform in the state of Texas. Yes, you did, sir. Um, su- subsequent to that, the uh, I've seen a much more detailed report, and it was published by this organization called Public Citizen, some kind of watchdog group kind of thing who kind of noses into those stuff are pinko like uh, leftist exactly uh, public citizen right yeah. But the data that they presented was extraordinarily uh, d- disappointing because the whole idea of this malpractice reform is that it is going to basically result in less defensive medicine, lower the cost of care, lower the cost of insurance, increase access to care because the doctors in the primary care setting will not be in having their patients come back as much because they won't be as afraid of being sued and, and all of those things. Is that what you thought it was for, Rick? I thought it was to cut our premiums. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. So the state of Texas in 2003 did what I think was the most aggressive legislation ever to uh, in in terms of malpractice. Yes, they leveled the field, no question. $250,000 cap on pain and suffering. Now, in California, we've had a $250,000 cap for probably 20 years, and people have said, you know, that's not fair. There's been no cost of living adjustments over that period of time, and it's still at 250000 and that's not very much money. Uh, they, and in fact, in Illinois, when they had a $250,000 cap in 2010, Illinois Supreme Court overturned that cap, basically saying it was against the state's constitution. Let's remember, that's Illinois, and they're, they're the state that brought you Barack Obama. So I mean, no, don't they, go there now. Okay. Don't go there. They, they may not be the ideal state to, to look at, but you're right. They did overturn it. So what did Texas do? They changed their constitution. Yes, they did. So you could not overturn the $250,000 cap. Yep. They basically changed the rules of evidence. Look at this evidence. I don't know whether this was extended to everybody, but an emergency physician, the evidence level that you need for an emergency physician to convict them, willful and wanton negligence. Well, understand, Willful Rick, and that that wasn't done for the emergency physicians. It was done for uh, people with much more power and money than we have. The surgeons, the orthopedists, those people basically said this, if you don't change the standard, we're not coming in. 
In fact, there was an emergency meeting of the Texas legislature to deal with this because we got put in with the group. But don't think it was done just to cover us. Uh, this is this is the absolute test case on this was a 19-year-old, no insurance, motorcycle accident who's now got dirt ground into his open uh, tibia fracture. And the question is, are you going to get somebody to come in and take... Now, by definition, the case I just gave you is what? Going to turn to shit in some way, shape, or form. It is. Should he be liable for suit for coming in and making good faith effort? It wasn't the emergency docs who who were the real nidus and impetus for this. It's the specialist support who are about to withdraw their support unless they got protection. But it's virtually impossible to convict somebody on a willful and wanton. Rick, they have people who will say anything in court. I understand what you mean, but the practical reality is, do you think they could find somebody with F-A-C-E-P after their name who'd say, oh, that's willful and wanton? I mean, we miss uh, C. Miller-Fisher variants of uh, Guillain-Barre disease. Oh, we'd never miss one of those. It'd be willful and want to miss that disease. They had also came up with strict, stricter standards for experts, which is probably a good idea. Yeah. And they allowed periodic payments. Yeah, by stricter standards meant they had to breathe on a regular basis. So between yeah. 19, 2003, when this was passed, and 2010, the uh, public citizen group said, what was the outcome? Um, have we gotten these things in terms of decreasing defensive medicine and decreasing insurance premiums and increasing access? And the answer to all three of those were no way. No uh, way. They looked at um, malpract- uh, the uh, Medicare payments for Part A, which is hospital, Part B, doctors in Texas. Between um, It went up 43% between 2003 and 2010, the national right. average was 38%. So it's 5% higher Medicare spending on doctors and hospitals. So the idea is, well, is it decreasing our cost of of defensive medicine? No. Well, this is a major study, and it, it, uh, well, I like the title. A failed experiment, healthcare in Texas, has worsened in key respects since state instituted liability caps. Um, I I think that what we're really looking for is almost the holy grail here, and that is if we thought that by changing the liability structure, doctors who have developed a pattern of ordering tests yes, that's the point. was going to change. No, the place you change that is in medical schools because as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. They learn that the checking of multiple boxes is easy, it's fun, and they never see the cost of it. I See, I think there were unreasonable expectations of what this would do, Rick. Uh, you're right. This, this problem has run amok. But I don't think the liability, and I think that's the point they're making, just changing the liability standards didn't change the spending on cases. Not at all. As a matter of fact. They got worse. Yeah. Texas got worse. The Medicare enrollee expenditures in 2003, when this thing passed, the the um, Texas ranked seventh in Medicare expenditures. In 2009, it's second in Medicare expenditures. Yeah. Who's so, above them? Do you know? <laughs> no, I don't. Florida. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't doubt that. Yeah. Yes, of course. And, and you know who's who's 50th? North Dakota. Uh, in fact, well, Minnesota is also like 42nd or 3rd. It's interesting to note that in Minnesota, they spend 
two and a half times less per Medicare enrollee than they do in Miami, Florida. Great study was done comparing Minneapolis and Miami. Uh, healthcare is not is not evenly spread in this country. The other thing is those people who had less money spent on them live longer. Diagnostic testing increased by a quarter or uh, 25%, 26% faster than the national average. Everything shows that everything is accelerating rather than flat or decreasing. Right. Healthcare insurance premiums rose 52% in Texas between 2003 and 2010. The national average was 50%, so that the citizens haven't gotten any uh, benefit out of this. Yep. Let me let me tell you one thing that happened in these time intervals, too, that totally changed the insurance picture. Whenever you're a company like an insurance company, you get a large chunk of money, $50 million. You invest it. You get return on the money, right, Rick? I mean, that's how they, they do it. Well, when over the last few years, how well have your investments done? They sure as hell haven't had the same production that they did in the 80s and 90s. And so all these insurance companies are having get used to the fact that they have to live on their premiums and not their return on investment. And it's it's been a shock for uh, everybody. Texas has the highest rate of uninsured people, and it has gone up since this legislation was passed in 2003. Mm-hmm. When they looked at payouts, the payouts in Texas are two per 100,000, two per 100,000. National average, 3.3 per 100,000. So there's a m- many fewer payouts in Texas. Right. When they look at uh, the dollar decrease in payouts, the, the dollar decrease in payouts is going down 65%, which uh, inflation adjusted is 74% decrease in payouts. What is the uh, insurance premium going down? 50%. There seems to be a little mismatch here. But they're not going to give you all the benefit, Rick. This is a company. Their job is to make money. So the insurance company payouts have gone down 65%, and the insurance premiums have gone down 50% from about an average of $18,000 a year to about $9,000 a year per doctor. So as a result, 15 new insurance companies have moved into Texas to help out with the crisis that they're having. Yes, of course. (laughs) I can't understand that. Yeah. Well, now you know how to get insurance companies into your state. Make it so they they can make money. So the real winners here are the uh, malpractice insurance companies by far in terms of the differential between their payouts and premiums. Physicians have benefited in terms of their premiums have decreased. But right. Here's the other problem with this study, Rick, is when you quoted it went from eighteen thousand dollars per doctor to nine. That's the that's the global world of doctors. That's that the in, average. They see that includes family practitioners, right. pediatricians. Right. If you look at the high risk specialties, who are the people we call in, neurosurgery, OB, orthopedics. Uh, they had they had a substantial decrease. What it does is it takes away their ability to bitch about being called in. I think I think that there are some advantages to us as emergency docs because they can't give us this crap anymore that, well, they're uninsured, I'll probably get sued. You know what, doctor? We took care of that for you. Now get your so ass in So think of here. another excuse. Yeah, you don't want to yeah come, come up with another excuse, but you can't use that one. 
Our time is just about up, Greg. So you, if you're going to do a wine, it needs to be a quickie wine. Okay, you got a we, quickie wine there. We can do a quickie wine. We're well, uh, and we're going to uh, continue our stroll out west. We're going to Washington State, uh, and I want to inform you of something which I think is magnificent. Wine Advocate rarely rates a wine, gives it a hundred. That's like the Holy Grail. That's like a great Chateau Lafitte, Latour, Houbriant, that sort of thing. Caius, 2008, um, uh, Impulsio uh, Vineyards uh, from Walla Walla, Washington, got 100 on one of their things, and they said... Did they cheat? (laughs) The guy who wrote the review, Jay Miller, said, uh, this is as good as any wine in the world. Wow. That must, I, I mean, the, the French must be pulling their damn hair out. And, and this was, it's, it's pricey, 75 bucks a bottle, but it's comparison to the $400 and $600 bottles from France. I don't think there's a reason to buy those wines anymore. I, I don't think it makes any sense. Now, for our readers, Columbia Crest, Washington State. This is a bottle we've all seen. It's got the hawk on the bottle. It's served at every damn country club and party you've ever been to. They rated their Merlot, the 2008 Merlot, uh, Columbia, this Columbia Valley in uh, Washington, 12 bucks a bottle, rated a 91, comparison to 30 and $40 a bottle wines. 12 bucks a bottle. There you go. There you go. And if you want to know where to get Columbia Crest, it's www.columbia-crest.com. All right, Greg, let's get out of here, have a little In-N-Out burger. Yeah, we need that. Okay. Thanks for being here with me, Greg. Uh, thank Greg, you, Rick. Greg is physically here in uh, Los Angeles, and it always makes it a lot more fun to do it face-to-face rather than Skype. But Skype, we got to do it. Hey, yeah, yeah, it's we modern technology. It. It's like the electronic medical record. So this is Greg Henry. Rick Bucata. We're saying goodbye, and we'll catch you next month. Bye Bye-bye. For now.